This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Before we get started on today's episode, one quick item of business. A couple of episodes ago, we did a podcast talking about the reference of the forgiven being forgiving. And in that episode, I had said I I wasn't I couldn't remember which fellowship that reference had come from. And I had done a quick Google search and hadn't been able to figure out in my Google search which fellowship the reference came from. Fortunately, we have some great listeners to the podcast, and one of them reached out to me and let me know that that reference is taken from the Fellowship of Essay, and it's on page 130 of the Essay Big Book. The context or the sentence in which it is that reference is given says, What power there is in such union, this fellowship of the forgiven who are forgiving one another. So again, essay, white book, page 130, that's where that reference comes from. And thank you to the listener who reached out and let me know that. On today's podcast episode, I've been uh, playing with the idea. I've had a couple of people, uh, a couple of clients ask me in the last month or so about like lying and why they lie or about honesty. You know, the 12-step fellowships are really big on being rigorously honest. And so... I've wanted to talk about lying. I think it's a complex process. And so wrapping my head around and kind of getting it into a format that can be helpful for those of you listening to an episode, um, I think I'm actually going to do, I've already written, you know, kind of the podcast script for this episode and then another episode online. And we'll see at the end of that episode if I feel like there's a third or possibly a fourth because I do think there's a lot to to talk about when we're talking about lying you know the reality is we all lie and rigorous honesty might come it might be in the recovery literature it might be something that we talk about in the recovery rooms and yet it's not something that only addicts do we all probably have heard uh, the joke how do you know if an addict is lying their mouth is moving And I think sometimes addicts get a little bit more, maybe even than their fair share of jokes or about talking about being liars or being dishonest, when the reality is most of us lie. A lot of the stuff that I read about will say everyone lies. It would go so far to say 100% of people lie. Now, even if we consider ourselves to be a really honest person, There's little white lies that we might not even notice ourselves saying each and every day. So, for example, how many times has someone asked you how you're doing and you respond with good when the reality is you're not good at all? And yeah, maybe that's a boundary. Maybe you don't want to get into it with this person. But is that the only option, right? Is it I either get into it with them and let them know kind of what's going on in my life, which I may or may not want to do, or can, is there another option of just saying, you know, it's I've had better days. Could I say that? That's not necessarily inviting a conversation about it, but could I be honest about that? Lying, it turns out, is something that not only all of us do, but most of us are quite adept at. So we lie with ease uh, in both big ways and small ways. 
and we lie to strangers, to coworkers, friends, and loved ones. Our capacity for dishonesty is as fundamental to us as our need to trust others, which, ironically, we'll talk a little bit about this, makes us terrible at detecting lies, right? As human beings, we aren't actually very good at detecting lies. And there's this part of like being deceitful that's kind of woven into our very fabric, so much so that one might say that to lie is human. Now, like I said at the beginning, lying is also a complex process. So let's just start with some facts about lying. So on average, Americans tell 11 lies per week. Again, it didn't necessarily differentiate between big lies or small lies, but on average, 11 lies per week is what Americans tell. Uh, The most famous moment of honesty in history, which is George Washington telling his father the truth about cutting down a cherry tree, is actually a lie. It's actually not true, and it was made up by a writer slash pastor slash traveling book salesman named Mason Weems. Another interesting fact about lying is that people tell more lies in January than any other month. And if you think about it, right, we're in January, we're coming out of the holiday stretch. We've usually had more weight gain or the holidays weren't as great as we wanted them to be, but we feel uncomfortable saying like, oh, I just hated getting together with my family or, you know, that I had a horrible vacation. I didn't do anything. I stayed in my pajamas most of the time. So people are going to tell more lies about how the holidays were and the month that follows the holidays is January which is why they think that more lies are told in January than any other month. People are also more likely to lie when they're writing than when they're talking to you face-to-face. So in our world of communication through email and texting, I think that's something to be considered, that we're more likely already to lie when we're writing something than we are face-to-face, and a lot of our communication is being moved um, to an online format. Research found that people tell about three more lies in an instant message conversation than they do face-to-face, and in email, they tell about five more lies in email than they would face-to-face. The other thing that research shows is that we lie to everyone. Parents get the worst of it, according to The Day America Told the Truth, with 86% of us lying to our parents regularly, followed by the next category of who we lie to is our friends at 75%, our siblings at 73%, and spouses 69%. Now, Bella DePaulo, she's a psychologist at the University of Virginia, found that college students lie to their mothers in one out of two conversations. That's a little startling considering that I have three college uh, students. Also, incidentally, when researchers are referring to lying and when they're studying that, they do not include the mindless pleasantries or the polite equivocations that we offer each other in passing. So like the example I gave of saying, how are you? And we say good when we aren't. That They actually aren't including that when they're researching lying. So they're, they're looking at what they're looking at in lying is an official lie actually misleads um, deliberately conveys a false impression or you know something like that so that there's a little bit more intent behind what they would look at and classify as a official lie so you know telling a friend that their awful hair color or the outfit that they're wearing is great when you don't think it is at all actually will not qualify in the research 
In general, though, we lie about things that aren't important. We lie about little things that we think will make us look better or make us more likable. Um, In a survey by a British film rental company, 30% of respondents had lied about seeing The Godfather. So something to think about, you know, the fact that human beings can universally, again, these are, uh, some of these are specific to the United States, others are across cultures. Um, But the fact that human beings can universally possess a talent for deceiving one another really shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Researchers speculate that lying as a behavior arose not long after the emergence of language. So the ability to manipulate others without using physical force likely conferred an advantage in the competition for resources, uh, for mates, um, kind of like this in the animal species. It's kind of akin to the evolution of deceptive strategies like camouflaging yourself. An ethicist at Harvard University, Cicela Bach, um, who's one of the most prominent thinkers on the subject, said it's much easier to lie in order to get somebody's money or wealth than to hit them over the head or rob a bank. So compared to other ways of gaining power, lying and deceit is actually relatively easy and doesn't require a lot of effort. Uh, I'm going to kind of crucify this name, but Bruno Verschur, he's also a psychologist, said a lot of us think the truth comes naturally and lying takes effort and a sharp, flexible mind. He says that lying is part of the developmental process, just like walking and talking. And that children learn to lie between ages two and five. And they lie the most when they're testing their independence. So again, another time in which uh, kids are testing their independences, some of those later teen years, probably again, having had three kids go through those later teen years, one kind of right in the middle of that, I will say, I I think that's also a testing of independence. Sometimes we attach these moral, moral traits to lying And so if our children lie, it upsets us quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we may be concerned. I've had uh, friends or like people that I know say to me, like, my child lied about this. And, you know, some of them are quite concerned, like, what does this mean about their future? And the reality is it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Like if all kids are going to lie and that's part of their developmental process, we don't need to freak out about it. Kang Lee, a psychologist at the University of Toronto, sees the emergence of the behavior in toddlers, this uh, behavior of lying in toddlers as a reassuring sign that their cognitive growth is on track. Dan Arely, a psychologist at Duke University and one of the world's foremost experts on lying, says he became fascinated with why people lie about 17 years ago. And it was a personal experience that he had that made him interested in this. So in experiments he and his colleagues ran on college campuses and elsewhere, volunteers were given a test with 20 simple math problems. Now right there, I'd probably be out. But they asked the volunteers to solve as many of the math problems as they could in five minutes. And then they told them that you're going to be paid based on how many of these you get right. So they were told to drop the sheet so their answer sheet, into a shredder before reporting the number that they solved correctly, right? So they're taking the, qu- the quiz or whatever. They're taking the test. They know how many they solved and how many they got right. And then they put it in the shredder. They report the number. 
right? And then they, obviously it's an experiment. And so the sheets that they put in the shredder didn't actually get shredded. And as it turns out, what they found is that a lot of the volunteers lied. They would say a lot of them reported solving six of the math equations, when in reality it was more like four. And they said that these results were similar across different cultures. And so they were saying that most of us are going to lie, but only a little. So the question Aralee finds interesting is not why so many of us lie, but rather why don't we lie more than we do? So he said that even when the amount of money offered for correct answers is raised significantly, right? So now you're, let's say, I don't know, I didn't read how much they offered in terms of money for solved math problems, but let's say that they offered $10 and now they said, we're going to offer $50 for every math problem that you solve correctly. He said the volunteers don't increase their level of cheating, right? So again, if most of them reported that they got five of them right, or no, they reported that they got six of them right, when in reality it was more likely to be four, he said that didn't really change when the reward, when the money paid for right answers significantly increased. Now he says the reason is that we want to see ourselves as honest, right? So we're also lying to ourselves. And he says, you know, to some degree, there's this internalized honesty that each of us have been taught by society, right? Whether it's our our church teachers, whether it's our school teachers, whether it's our parents, um, most of us have been taught to value honesty and to kind of internalize that as one of our values. He says, which is why, you know, unless one is a sociopath, most of us will place limits on how much we're willing to lie. So how far we're willing to go with the lie, how deceptive we're actually going to be is also determined by social norms so there's, you know, it's he kind of compares it to like online dating. Uh, most people expect that there's going to be some lies in online dating. Now, the number of lies and how deceptive the lies actually are is going to impact whether or not people are willing to overlook those and still get to know the person or not. Things like, you know, just kind of this, I take supplies from work and I take those home with me. And that's actually dishonest, right? That's actually stealing. Those aren't things that you purchased yourself for your use. Um, he says, but there's some of that where we will overlook some of that and we don't necessarily count those as dishonest. So also among psychiatrists, uh, mental health professionals, there doesn't really appear to be an agreement that the relationship between mental health and lying, uh, that there is a relationship, right? So even though, you know, they did what the, what the research did say or what mental health professionals are saying are that some people with certain psychiatric disorders seem to exhibit specific lying behaviors. For example, sociopathic individuals, which we've talked about before, um, are going to be those people who are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. They tend to tell lies that are much more manipulative, whereas somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder may tell falsehoods in order to boost their image. So the type of lie that they tell and the reason for lying may have something to do with the mental health diagnosis, but there's not necessarily like those people who lie tend to have more mental health issues, like they, they couldn't really establish that. Now, something to think about, I think, you know, much of the knowledge that we use to navigate the world 
comes from information that we've been given by other people. So, you know, as a child growing up, I really am dependent upon my school teachers, my parents, people at church, the people surrounding me. I'm really dependent upon how they deliver information to me and whether it's honest or not, because that helps me to navigate my world. Now, clear back in 1816, Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have said, history is a set of lies agreed upon. Now, a little bit more recent, Santayana said, history is a pack of lies about events that never happened, told by people who weren't there. And I think that's something to think about. I, I don't know that we're more honest if we're actually there. Maybe, you know, we've done some episodes kind of on some of the personality disorders looking at that. I, I think sometimes in certain situations, right, people are more willing to tell the truth or be honest about things when they weren't there, when it wasn't maybe a part of their world or it wasn't a part of their life, then we might get a little bit more honest. And so again, there is this kind of changing of history or the way that history is written by those who lived it may be different by their children or their grandchildren. So without this implicit trust that we place in this human communication, right, that is handed down, like these are the stories that we believe and that help us make sense of our world, we really would be paralyzed as individuals and we, we wouldn't know how to have social relationships. So we get so much from believing. And, you know, again, when the brain is processing, I often will say one of the brain's, you know, number one rules is protect the asset. And the asset is whoever's body the brain is inhabiting, right? So this brain is constantly then scanning and detecting danger. It's not necessarily looking for positive things because, again, that's not a threat. It's going to look for what is a threat. And so we don't really get a lot of harm uh, when we occasionally get duped. And so some people will say this is part of the reason why we aren't very good at detecting deceit or detecting lies, but we are kind of dependent on this feeling of safety that comes from being able to trust the people we bring into our lives. Uh, Tim Levine, a psychologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, called this idea the truth default theory, right? So we kind of default to believing. We kind of default to this person is telling me the truth. So although we're socialized from the time we can speak to believe that it's always better to tell the truth, in reality, society often encourages and even rewards deception. You know, if you show up late for any morning meeting at work and it, it you know, it's just best not to admit that you overslept or you hit snooze too many times, it's more acceptable to say I was stuck in traffic, right? So there are some of these like, how do people respond when the truth is told that also can re reinforce this, it's okay to tell some lies. Some lies are acceptable. I tell the story sometimes when my husband, when Jeff and I were first married, I was coming home from work and I had left later from the office than I had anticipated, which was gonna put me home later than I had told him I would be home. So I'm driving home and by the way, you know, I was coming uh, south. My, my work came south to get to my house. His work, he traveled north. So we weren't necessarily uh, going to be experiencing the same type of traffic. So I'm driving home. I know I'm going to be late. I'm totally 
getting my life prepared, right? Well, first, before I can really uh, talk about this story, I have to back up a little bit and give you some history of where I was and kind of what had brought me to that point in my life, kind of what had what had been the guiding influences of my dishonesty, right? Why I would be driving home preparing to lie to my husband. So I, I think one of the first things, and, and if you've listened to this podcast and you hear my story or I've talked about my story, this won't be a surprise to you that my family kept a very uh, public front, right? So the way we showed up at church, the way um, like our teachers experienced us as students, the way even our neighbors maybe would have viewed my family uh, we had a very positive public image and all of us knew that as kids like we all knew that we were to make the family look good and that we were not to let on that anything might have been amiss in, in fact i will tell people my dad had moved out of the house and had not been living at the home i think it was like nine months before people started to find out. That's a really long time, right? And to me, I mean, my dad didn't have a lot of relationships with the neighbors or with church people, right? So he he wasn't necessarily going to be missed in those ways. But, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I would, I would have thought people would notice that, like, his car was never there. And granted, his car wasn't there a lot because he was, you know, so-called working. But it, I, I don't know. I, I Maybe I was giving my neighbors more credit than they deserved, right, for noticing or, or noticing the lack of my car, my dad's car in the driveway. Um, but I think there was part of growing up, um, having to kind of put this front out to the public, knowing what was happening behind closed doors. I think that very much, like I just kind of grew up in some dishonesty, right? I grew up in these uh, like, don't be honest about what's actually happening. That's something you have to hide. And, you know, in in my family or for my mom, like she totally could have justified why we needed to keep that quiet. Um, and, and so there was part of that where I will often say, like, I came by my dishonesty, honestly. When I started being a teenager and was in high school and even a little bit before, like the last year or so of junior high, you know, I wanted to go out and hang out with friends. I wanted to stay out a little bit later um, in the evenings, on the weekends, things like that. And I did have my older sister. She was just always really obedient. You know, like if she had a curfew on the weekend, a lot of times she'd come home before her curfew. And to me, the second one, the second child in our family following that, like that never made sense to me. Like, why would you come home early? And you know, she often too would, like if she went out on Friday night with friends, maybe she went to the high school game or something like that. She didn't really see a need to go out Saturday night. And for me, again, I was like, that's crazy. Like I go out Friday night. I also want to go out Saturday night. Heck, I'd like to go out Sunday night. We weren't allowed to hang out with friends on Sunday, but I would have wanted to. So my parents started giving me this curfew because I think my sister was just easier. You know, I, I, not that I was a difficult teenager I don't think but you know she kind of patrolled herself and so my parents would give me this curfew and you know where where I lived was on the west side of town and my friends a lot of my friends lived on the east side of town and so often you know when I wasn't driving if I had to be dropped off I was one of the last ones to be dropped off right so they'd kind of go to the houses closer to them and make their way down to my house 
And, and so often I was being dropped off last. And even if we, I would tell my mom, even if we left, let's say my curfew was at 11 o'clock, even if we left the house at five to 11, I was going to be late. And that wasn't my fault. Like I wasn't driving and, you know, I didn't feel like I could say like, Hey, could you start with me all the way out of the way? Because I was just grateful that they were willing to take me home. And then even when I did have my license, you know, I might be dropping people off, but I might be a little bit late. And for my mom, it was a really big deal. Like if you were five minute, five minutes late for curfew, that was a really big deal for her. And she was one of those who always waited up and, you know, would just get madder as the minutes ticked by and we weren't home. And, you know, when I got home, often it would be an argument and we had some pretty good arguments going on in my house. And so these arguments could easily last an hour, right? And, and some of the rationale behind the arguments didn't always add up to me where, you know, she's really mad that I'm seven minutes late for my curfew and that's keeping her up. But then we're going to stay up an additional hour so that she can tell me how inconvenient that is. Didn't really make sense to me. But it was a big deal if I was not home when I was told to be home. And then the other thing, you know, I, I think part of it was just, I don't know, like maybe just part of the dishonesty that came to me honestly. Like throughout high school, right, I cheated. And I was not the only one who cheated. Like most of us at my high school were cheating. And I could totally justify it, right? I pretty much got through and passed trig and I, I couldn't even tell you what trig is about right like but I passed it I got I think I got again I wasn't gonna lie too well right I wasn't gonna get an A but I was gonna get B's even though I have no idea what trigonometry is even about um, and I could totally justify it and say well it's not really my fault that I'm cheating my teacher didn't teach very well and so it's the teacher's fault it's not my fault like I'm just doing what I have to to pass it's not my fault they didn't teach me and so I remember my senior year of high school, when, where I went to high school, there was a class that was only available to seniors. Um, at the time, it was called Current Issues. And we would study, you know, kind of current history. So when I was going to school, I was born in 1970. I'll just tell you how old I am. And so we would study things like maybe end of the 50s through the 60s up through current day. So when I was in high school, there was the, the Iran-Contra affair was going on with President Reagan. So we also studied that. And this was a class that uh, Mr. Bailey taught. And Mr. Bailey was a really well-liked teacher. He was known for, like, everybody just really loved him. And he, again, he only taught seniors. So it was kind of this, like, rite of passage to be able to take classes from Mr. Bailey. And, you know, so I took my senior year, I took current issues. And I will say all of our tests in Mr. Bailey's class were, uh, like, essay. So you couldn't really cheat, right? Because it was an essay class. And I did study a lot. And I studied really hard for Mr. Bailey's class. And I also got A's in Mr. Bailey's class. And I passed um, with a lot of hard work on my part. But in a lot of other classes, like I really didn't think twice about cheating. And the other thing about uh, Mr. Bailey, because he only worked with seniors, you know, at the end of the school year, we would have, you know, a school-wide assembly. And it was kind of a tribute maybe to the seniors who were graduating. And Mr. Bailey would usually get up and say a few things about the graduating class and what he had learned from his interactions with them that year and by teaching them that year. 
And this was also kind of a rite of passage for the seniors who were graduating high school. And so the year that I graduated, Mr. Bailey, we had the assembly, Mr. Bailey gets up and I remember him saying for the first time as a public school teacher, I am concerned about the future of our country and the leaders of our country based on the class of 88, which was my graduating class. And I don't know how a lot of seniors felt sitting in the audience as he called us out. Like to me, my, my heart just, you know, dropped into my gut. And he went on and he said, the class of 88 cheats. They're dishonest. They're deceitful. They lie. They don't feel bad about it. I don't know what else he said. Like that's kind of all I took away from his speech to the graduating class of 88. But I remember maybe for the first time kind of putting together this like, oh, he thinks that because we cheat and we lie here, that we might not do so well in our lives in general, right? Like to me, that had never occurred to me. Like I was just surviving and a lot of my life was about surviving. And so I didn't really think twice about lying or doing whatever I needed to in order to survive. And when Mr. Bailey gave this speech, it was one of the first times that I, I think I saw the bigger picture, right? That at least he was saying, I have concerns about where we're headed based on what I see with this graduating class. And so I, I think it didn't happen right away, right? But I think that was probably the beginning of my ability to really value honesty and I don't know if that needs to happen for everybody. I don't know if valuing honesty comes from being dishonest. It did for me. I also remember uh, my senior year was the first time I told somebody he was my next door neighbor and he was actually a year younger than me, but we were kind of friends and, you know, we'd carpool to school or we didn't really carpool. I would just take him to school and bring him home from school most days with me. And one night, the summer, I think before my senior year, we were, we both got home from wherever we were about the same time. And we just sat out on the side of my house and talked and we talked for a long time. And, uh, he was the first one that I ever told like our family secret to. And, you know, turns out he, he already knew some of that. Like he could be in a next door neighbor. He had observed some things. He had observed some things, but that was kind of the beginning, I think for me of starting to be more honest and looking at myself and what honesty is really about and really valuing honesty instead of just surviving and being dishonest to survive. Okay, so back to this story. So I'm coming home from work and, you know, I, I've got the story all prepared and my husband wouldn't know, right? Back then we didn't have GPS. He wouldn't have known what the traffic was like from my direction. And so I got home, I think I was like 25 minutes late. And, and, and you know, the reality is I was, I was getting ready to leave work I had packed up my bag, I was heading home, and I ran into my supervisor, and he had a couple questions that he needed to talk to me about, and we started talking, and neither of us, like, we weren't doing anything wrong. There was nothing for my husband to be upset about, but I couldn't quite hold on to that, right? I couldn't kind of hold on to my own truth about that. So, I, you know, I was 25 minutes late leaving work from what I had planned, and I'm driving home and I'm coming up with my lie and I walk in the door and I'm prepared, you know, for my husband to hit me with like, where have you been? Why are you late? And I walk in 
And, you know, my husband's like got some music on and he's like starting some dinner prep. We didn't have any kids at this time. And, you know, I was like, hey, and he's like, oh, hey, how are you? And I was like, good. How was your day? And he's talking to me like, how was your day? And we're just kind of talking and I'm kind of like, I have this lie all prepared and like, maybe I don't need it. Like, when is this going to happen? Right. I think I was just used to my mom's response to being late and, and it turned out like he never, he never questioned me at all. Right. And there was part of me that I was like, okay, like I am 25, you know, maybe I could be a little bit late from work and be honest and not be in trouble. And it was kind of the beginning of me thinking like maybe at 25, you know, I can't get grounded. Maybe at 25, I don't have to have an hour fight if I'm seven minutes late. Like maybe I just can be honest about that. And it really started getting me once again to kind of think about my honesty. It, it still took a lot of practice. I think it takes some practice to be honest. I think dishonesty and lying is a part of immature development, right? So flash forward, you know, we've been married. Let's see, this, this year was 26 years that we've been married. So about four years ago, I think. Um, now I have this habit of like occasionally... Um, If it's like bad weather in November, kind of a gloomy, colder, overcast day in October, I might listen to some Christmas music on my commute home or to work or whatever, right? I might listen to that, some Christmas music. And my husband teases me about this, right? He is the kind of guy who thinks Christmas music is made and you start listening on December 20th and by December 25th, you're done, right? Christmas music is like a five-day thing. And for me, it's not. And so he'll tease me about this, whatever. So it was one of these days in October. I listened to Christmas music on my way home. It was a Friday. I get home, pull in the garage, you know, go inside. We're kind of talking. We decide we're going to go out to dinner. So, and we're going to take my car. So we get in my car. I start the car and my Bluetooth, you know, hooks into my car. And here comes Christmas music, you know, and my husband turns to me and he's like, are you kidding me? And you know, he was kind of joking, but still he's like, Jackie, are you listening to Christmas music in October? And, you know, for, for just an instant in my head, I'm thinking, no, not weird, like weird. My phone just like randomly went to something. How did that happen? That's crazy. That's what I was thinking in my head. Right. And I kind of took a breath and I just said, you know what, what I do in my car when I'm by myself, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, It's really none of your business. And he looked at me and he was like, you're right. And then we just kind of went on. Again, I don't think he was even trying to fight, right? He was just kind of teasing me. But it was something that, yeah, like sometimes I am embarrassed to admit that occasionally in October I listen to Christmas music. And so again, when he's kind of teasing me and, and nudging me about this, my first instinct was lie. And there was no reason to lie. But I had to kind of hold myself to be honest, right? I kind of had to listen to the lie in my head, take a deep breath and decide to tell him what I knew didn't fit into his world, right? Like that's not how he does things. And so I think there is some maturing that has to happen in order to be able to let ourselves be vulnerable for somebody else to see that. Maybe they disagree. Maybe I think it's really hard to tell somebody that we maybe who is in authority over us, maybe who is somebody that we care about, and we have to tell them what we know they don't want to hear, right? That's a, that's a mature thing to do. That's not easy. 
to say, I know you, I care about you, or I know you, I work for you. And I have to be honest, and I know that you're not going to like hearing what I say. Or what I say isn't what you would say, or isn't what you would do, or what you would think, whatever that looks like. To be able to do that, I think, takes some guts, right? First, it takes some guts. I think it takes some maturity. When we talk about the ACA fellowship, the adult children that really looks at dysfunctional families, you know, they talk about some of the rules that you learn growing up in dysfunctional families of don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. So if I'm going to be honest, right, I first have to know the truth. I have to be able to know my truth. And then I have to be able to speak that truth, right? Which in dysfunctional families, one of the rules is you don't speak the truth and you don't feel the truth. And as a byproduct of that, you don't really trust yourself, right? So it's not that big of a leap to think that you also don't trust other people and you don't trust them with your truth or the truth. Um, so I think it takes strength. I t- think it takes maturity and I think it takes courage to be truthful and to be honest. And I think when we look at honesty that way, honesty is not just about telling the truth. That's a part of it. But it's also about being real with first yourself and then others about who you are and what you want and what you need to live your most authentic life. And that's vulnerable. And as we all know, if we've listened to Brene Brown, we shy away from vulnerability. It doesn't mean that we can't take a breath and step into the vulnerability and be truthful and be honest and let another person know us, but it takes practice. The end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.